You see, you hesitate. But as a captain, you can't. You have to act. If you don't, you put the entire crew at risk. Now that's the job. It's not a science. You have to be able to make hard decisions based on imperfect information, asking men that will carry out orders that may result in their deaths. And if you're wrong, you suffer the consequences. If you're not prepared to make those decisions without pause, without reflection, then you've got no business being a submarine captain. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Random Musings, number 19 for the week of, oh, let's say, November 6, 2023. So about a year ago, WordPress actually introduced an AI assistant block where you can, like, you know, type up a title or have the basic ideas in your blog post already and then add an AI block, and it will basically write up something for you. And while it does leverage the current chat GPT-4 model, which is supposed to be, you know, reportedly more lifelike, at least as of late October of 2023, I still find AI writing to be pretty generic in its tone. I mean, yes, it can produce different tones and it can produce better writing for you. But if we're talking about historical writing, that is like nonfiction writing, then in my opinion, it still comes off as really derivative and lacking in that human voice, so to speak. I mean, it's just generic. There's nothing really unique about it. In many ways, I still prefer to do the research and the writing myself because, for one thing, it's in my own voice, and for another thing, it's my original work, or at least work that I can say is my own. Not that what I write is terribly original, because even my historical writing is, let's be honest, very derivative, and I use mostly secondary sources anyway. But hey, I mean, at least my writing is something that I wrote, not what an AI wrote. Another thing is that the AI doesn't really know what you're thinking, so to speak. It's unlikely to come up with some kind of revolutionary thesis or groundbreaking interpretation of this, that, or the other. The human brain is still far better at being creative and those types of things. I suppose that's just another reason why I find AI so limited when it comes to historiography, the actual writing of history. Not only does it lack that human voice, but it lacks that ability to create sort of deeper analyses and interpretations of the material. While I haven't really had much use for generative AI writing in general, I have discovered that, at the very least, there is one benefit of using AI in conjunction with WordPress. The way it goes is, after I've written up my article, there is a section on the right sidebar where you can type in an excerpt. But WordPress, on the other hand, also gives you the option of having an AI create this for you, so you don't actually have to write it up yourself, although you can still do that if you want to. But I'm like, well, I mean, it's, it's just writing like a paragraph or so, you know, a little blurb about what the article is about. Basically, since I've written all the content, it just analyzes the writing and creates a short paragraph blurb on what it's about. So I've gone back through just about all of my posts, with the exception of the Sailor Speak of the Week posts, because those are really just, you know, definitions. And I've had the AI write the excerpts for those posts for me. Now, not that it really matters much in the end, but I, I figured, well, I mean, it might have some increase in traffic to the site a bit, you know, instead of just like, because normally the excerpt is just like the first couple of sentences on the, you know, whatever you wrote on the, on the article or blog post that you wrote, but it doesn't always come off as sounding as fl smoothly flowing, so to speak, so... Now, in my last random musings, I discussed some of the nice things about working as a substitute teacher as well as working as a tour guide on a submarine. And pondering this employment situation a bit further, I figured, you know, here's some other nice things about my job situation. Now, in both of these jobs, one thing I really enjoy probably the most is that I don't bring my work home with me at the end of the day. And 
you know, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this before, but I hate bringing work home with me. You know, I, I'm very adamant about keeping a very clear work life separation. And that's really something I just did not have when I was a full time contracted teacher. So, I mean, it, it sounds weird. Like, why wouldn't you want to make more money? You know, I mean, yes, true. I mean, being a contracted teacher means you have more job security. You work regularly five days a week, you know, but piling on all that other work, you know, meant that I just every day, I every week, I brought my work home with me. Now, in contrast, when I'm substitute teaching or when I'm working on the submarine, I just go to work and, you know, I leave it behind and I come home and I rest. To be honest, this this lack of work-life balance is something, one of the reasons why I'm questioning my future in public education, at least as far as being a regular contracted teacher. You know, like, the, admittedly, the thought goes to my head, okay, do I really want to you know, get another full-time teaching job? Do I really want to have a career as a teacher, right? Do I want to really want to teach, you know, social studies or history for, you know, the next 20 or 30 years and chase that pension until I'm like 70 or 80 years old or whatever, you know? Because the reality is, is that there's endless administrative work to be done. There's the lesson planning, there's the grading, there's the emails you have to write and respond to and think about and the phone calls and so on and so forth, and this, that, and the other, and, you know, all the other professional development and the training and yada, yada, yada that you have to do, and that, that never, ever ends. And so when I was contracted and working as a middle school teacher, you know, I didn't have weekends off. And again, it's, this, it's one of those myths that I really want to dispel about people who obviously have never taught or have never been teachers, you know, like, oh, it must be nice being a teacher. Oh, you get like holidays off and winter break and spring break and summer vacations and yada, yada, yada. It's like, no, it's like, yeah, as one, you know, fellow teacher said, you're essentially doing, you know, a full year's work in basically nine months. Yeah. But I mean, when I was contracted and teaching, I was working seven days a week, but I only got paid for five of those days, you know, that 40 hours during the, the work week, you know, Monday through Friday that actually worked. But in reality, I was doing like 50 or 60, thereabouts, hours of work a week. No, I didn't have holidays off, winter break or spring break or whatever. No, I still worked just about every day of my winter break and my spring break. And usually I was just playing catch up, you know, I was trying desperately to get ahead. And that's really what your first couple of years of teaching are. You're just treading water, trying to stay afloat, keep from drowning in your work. No, it wasn't really relaxing. I didn't get to sit back and relax and enjoy Thanksgiving and Christmas and, you know, uh, my spring break. No, it's like, great. All right. Well, that basically means it's just it's just days that I don't have to teach and days that I don't have to put up with my students and all their crap, you know, and whatever silly nonsense they're doing and them being little a-holes and all that. So no, but basically it just means I have a whole lot of time for lesson planning and prep and all that. It's basically a really, really, really long prep period. That's what my winter break and spring break were. Now, as I previously mentioned, with substitute teaching, I do not bring work home with me. That being said, unless it's a long-term substitute teaching job, which, is, which are jobs of 10 days or more for that particular teacher. However, those are actually few and far between. So there's that. But I mean, like I said, you know, the odds that I usually get long-term sub jobs, they might happen once or twice a year thereabouts, if at that. But thinking more about being a substitute teacher, I mean, there is the possibility that I might stay in the field of education purely as a substitute teacher. I mean, let's be honest here. At this point, my teaching career in the United States anyway has pretty much mounted to nothing. Um, and it's largely been as a substitute. Like this is my fifth year currently uh, with my teaching license. And of those five years, I've only spent one year, that is 20% of my career, as it were, as a contracted full-time teacher teaching, you know, a subject. You know, in my case, you know, I, again, I was a middle school uh, social studies and English teacher. And honestly, I'm somewhat inclined to say that apart from the lower pay and the occasional periods of inconsistent work, substitute teaching is kind of the better deal, at least as far as my life goes. I mean, it's far less stressful. Like I said, you don't bring work home with you. 
There's a minimum of administrative crap to do. You get to see a lot of different classrooms. You get to meet different kids, different teachers, and so on. And you can pr pretty much set your own schedule. Indeed, there, you don't have to look hard. There are teachers out there who have made their entire careers working as substitute teachers. So they are not uh, unheard of, I should say. And if all you need to do is look around, you'll find that they're actually kind of common, you know? Like I said before, you know, there are people who said like, oh, I used to teach, you know, I was a, you know, an elementary school third grade teacher for like 10 years or, oh, I taught middle school for eight years or, oh, I taught high school, you know, math or science or whatever for 15 years and I just got fed up and sick of it and I just went to substitute teaching, you know. And even at that, you know, there's a lot of retired teachers who are, you know, essentially semi-retired because they've gone back and become substitutes, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, I taught for... 30 years, you know, with this high school or in this district and I retired, you know, with full retirements and all that. And now I'm just substituting, you know, keep making a little bit of money. So again, it's not unheard of for people to make their entire careers as substitutes, essentially. Now, whether or not I'll do that, I'm still kind of up in the air about it. Also, there is not necessarily a guarantee of job security when it comes to full-time teaching. And what I mean is that I have seen some very good teachers get essentially ousted from their jobs, their positions, because of various things like internal politics in the school or school scandals or something, real or not, uh, claims of harassment, and the general just change in the winds of education. I mean, being a full-time contracted teacher, you do have a fair amount of job security, which is certainly true, but I've seen really excellent teachers who you'd think like, oh my God, like why, you know, th this person easily has got it made, you know, no way they would ever, you know, be transferred or fired or whatever. But I've seen people like that get ousted, you know, for whatever reason, any number of reasons. So no, like there, in no way are these people bad people. They've never, you know, harassed or abused a student or anything like that, or really done anything wrong, but because of just the changing politics or the winds or whatever, you know, it, they, for whatever reason, it's like, oh yeah, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to have a different job or I'm going to be working in a different district or I got transferred or something, you know, so because of whatever. And this is partially because not every teaching position within a particular subject, you know, math, science, history, uh, whatever, you know, is the same from school to school or from district to district. Now, for better or for worse, educational practice is susceptible to whatever punchlines or keywords are in vogue or politically or socially fashionable at the time, because we do live in a world of politically charged dialogue, which has unfortunately affected education. And it always has. This is nothing new, okay? It's been happening, you know, for decades and decades. For example, I know of one high school in my area and only one that has an IB history class of Asia. Everything else, it's like IB history of the Americas or IB European history or something like that, right? International baccalaureate, that's what I mean by IB. But I only know of one school that actually has an IB history of Asia class. That class would be the perfect subject for me to teach because my academic background is in Japanology, you know, Japanese studies. That's what I'm, that's what I have my bachelor's degree in. So I'm an expert on things Japan and by some extent East Asia, you know, I need to know how it relates to the rest of Japan and stuff, you know. So last year, I was actually hoping that another position, another uh, teaching position for that IB history of Asia class would open up, you know, because maybe there would be more students who are signing up for it. And so like, okay, well, we definitely the class sizes are getting too big. We need to hire someone else for another couple of sections of this class, you know. So I was hoping that this year, this school year, the 2023 to 2024 year would, they would open up another position for it. And therefore I would apply and hopefully get it. But nope, that never happened. Assuming, like, let's say it did, and I somehow got that job, and I were teaching several sections of IB History of Asia, I'm not entirely sure how long that class would actually be offered. Again, because, well, is it in vogue, right? It's a very specific class, and it's not normally part of the general social studies curriculum. 
right? At least in my area, the general social studies curriculum is that freshmen take a world studies class. That's basically like, you know, a very broad kind of world history type class. Uh, sophomores usually do U.S. history. And then after that, you have things like uh, economics or IB, history of the Americas or something like that for the upper levels, right? Other schools I've seen, um, you only need three credits of some kind of social studies or history course. So, you know, students will do like a, during their sophomore year, they'll do a world history class. Junior year is usually a U.S. history class. And then after that, it's like IB history or something or maybe a economics class or IB psychology or something. Those are usually the upper level courses. In another example, I know of another high school that has a class on peace and conflict. Now, before you get your hopes up, I have substituted for this teacher, and this is not a military history class. The focus of the class is not on military operations and weapons and warfare and all that, no. But it's on the politics and causes of conflict and efforts at peace and reconciliation. So, you know, maybe they're studying like the Iranian Revolution. But then again, you know, I, I mean, could you imagine how popular a military history class would be in a high school at that matter? Sadly, I mean, a military history class in high school won't happen, or at least I don't know of any high school in my area at any district I teach at that where there's ever been a military history class. Yep. Nope. <laughs> That's not a zip. No one would ever go for it. As I mentioned in my op-ed on Max Hastings' observations on military history in higher education, the whole topic of military history is seen as something of a, a dirty thing, you know. Everyone who studies military history is some kind of closeted warmonger and jingoistic meathead just itching to go to war and blow stuff up and kill everyone. Rah, rah, get some, you know. Oh, yeah, you study military history. You must love blood and guts and violence. and uh, Yeah, no. So, but... That again, that's that's just my opinion because that's what I study. But to the average person who doesn't know anything about that particular subfield of history, you know, that's what military history is to them. It's guns and blood and guts and shooting and killing people, right? Violence. Anyway, my point is that classes on highly specific topics such as these are very rare. And it's not always guaranteed that you will have that particular job or teach that class for a long period of time. To be honest, it just depends on how many students sign up for that. And even then, it also depends on whether or not the school administrators, the principal and the vice principals and all that, and the school board likes those courses enough to keep offering them. So, hey, you know, it, it may last a long time. It may last for a year or two. And then like, nope, sorry, we're getting rid of it. Then what happens? Well, you can transfer, you can teach a regular history course or whatever, you know. Now, another benefit of staying on as a substitute is that, simply put, there will likely always be a need for substitute teachers as long as we have, you know, warm bodies, right? As long as we have teachers physically in the classroom, you know, people are going to get sick. People are going to have doctor's appointments, family emergencies, vacations planned, meetings, trainings to attend, and so on and so forth. So as long as we basically have reasons to keep pulling the regular teacher out of the classroom, whether for illness or family needs or work, they're going to need warm bodies to fill their place and watch over the students. Now, true, in a manner of speaking, substitute teaching can be kind of like babysitting, but you're just high-priced babysitting and you get paid for it. However, since I only sub in high schools, the students are much more self-directed. Now, here's, here's the reality of substitute teaching, at least in high schools. The reality is that it's super easy. My basic day in a high school classroom as a substitute teacher revolves around me starting out each class with taking attendance and then giving the students their assigned instructions. And that usually only takes up about maybe 15 or 20 minutes maximum. And then basically I spend the rest of the class period watching the students, making sure they don't like kill each other or something, right? Clean up the blood afterwards and all that. So, you know, I'll circulate around look over their shoulders, see if they're doing the work, and in which case many of them probably aren't, and I'm not going to try and force them to do their work. You know, I'll, I'll give a redirect here or there. It's like, hey, you know, put that down. Or, hey, hey, you know, tell me all about what you're working on right now. Or, hey, let me help out, you know. But the reality is that they, if they want to waste their time playing stupid games on their phones or Chromebooks, then fine. That's their problem, you know. 
And the reality is that both the substitute and the regular teacher is under no illusions about how much work the students are or are not doing when there's a substitute in the room. Let's be honest here, you know, that's basically what happens, you know? On rare occasions, I actually will teach a lesson provided to me by the regular teacher, and sometimes the teacher has me show the students maybe like a film or a documentary or something like that. But the majority of substitute teaching assignments are actually work days for students, right? I've literally gotten lesson plans, you know, instructions from the regular teacher, and it just says work day. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, easy. All right. You know, all right, I take attendance. You know, is Bill here? Is Jonathan here? Is, you know, Nathan here? Okay, that's attendance. All right, here are your instructions, kids. You have a work day. Yeah, and that's it. <laughs> now, the reason for this is because there's no guarantee that when the regular teacher puts in the request for a substitute that the substitute they get will be endorsed to teach that subject that they're teaching. Now, I've subbed for literally every subject out there except choir. Yes, I have subbed for subjects that I have zero training or knowledge in, or maybe the only knowledge I have of dates back like 20 years to when I was in middle school, right? You know, I've subbed for like band or something. I haven't played an instrument since I was a middle schooler, but yet I've substituted for those classes. Now, when teachers actually do provide me with a genuine lesson to teach, you know, here's the PowerPoint, the slides you're going to need for today, go through these slides, you know, uh, transition to this topic and pass out this handout and, you know, tell the students to go on to Google Classroom and do this and help them with that and so on, you know, that having a genuine lesson to teach, that's usually because the teacher and I are actually acquainted with each other, at least to some degree, and they know that I'm a social studies teacher. Ergo, the actual lesson I would be teaching is a social studies topic, a history topic. That being said, even then, there's no guarantee that I'm actually knowledgeable on the particular topic the students are studying in that particular unit. Like, I didn't create the lesson plan, so I don't really know what the expectations the teacher has for the assignment that the students are doing. Like, I can take an educated guess, but that's it. You know, I'm not grading this stuff. You know, I don't know what constitutes good work or bad work. You know, I mean, generally I can, I can see if it's like a worksheet or something, but you know, if the students are like writing a paper, you know, and I don't know the, the overall like grading rubric brick or, um, or what the teacher really expects out of the assignment, then like, uh, well, uh, yeah, I guess you're doing a good job. Sure. As long as you're working. Right. But I can take a guess. Now, maybe the students are doing like a, I don't know, a unit on, African tribal practices or something it's like, I don't know shit about that, whatever, you know, like, yeah, so I'm just a Japanologist. I don't really know much about like other parts of the world aside from East Asia. Regarding phone use, as I mentioned before, both the regular teacher and I are under no illusions about, you know, the students when they're when I'm in the class, like even if the school has a really strict policy on no cell phones in the class, right? I've seen teachers who say like, you know, tell students to put their cell phones in the little uh, pocket, you know, on the wall, you know, or uh, when the students like go to the bathroom, they're supposed to leave their phone on your desk, right? So they don't take it with them, you know, because that's what they end up doing is they end up, they may actually be going to the bathroom, but they're sitting on the toilet or whatever, playing on their phone for like the next 15 or 20 minutes before they actually come back, you know, in the meantime, in that 15 or 20 minutes, another five students have realized they have to go to the bathroom and, but the pass is out. So now it's like, can you wait for the pass to come back? You know, I can only let one person out at a time. It's like, oh, but I really got to pee. It's like, yeah, well, the person who is peeing right now is probably sitting on the toilet using their phone, you know, texting or making a TikTok or something, some dumb crap like that, you know? So I've, I've had, I've seen different kinds of like, you know, really strict cell phone policies, right? Like that, you know, put your phone away or put it in the pocket or, leave it on the teacher's desk when you go to the bathroom. But that being said, when they see that a substitute teacher is their teacher for that particular class, then boom, the phones just come right out and they stay out, you know? And I could tell them, hey, put your phones away. I can say that ad nauseum. Put your phones away. Hey, turn your phones over. Hey, turn your phone off. Put, put your phone away. No, hey, hey, hey you want to get some work done? Hey, try putting your phone away. Hey, how about you put your phone away? Here, let me help you with doing your work. No, it's all right. Oh, I'm on my phone. Yeah, so yeah. Ah, uh, but I am so sick and tired of doing that. I am so tired of being the phone police. And 99% of the students don't even listen to me. Why? Because I'm a substitute. 
I don't care, you know, they don't care. I'm just with them for one class period, you know, 90 minutes out of the day. What do they care, right? So we don't have that same relationship, you know, me and the student as they do with the regular teacher. And to be bluntly honest, you know, as a substitute, basically, as long as the students are not disrupting others, what time they waste on their phones or their devices is their loss. And I've told students, hey, don't come crying to me saying like, oh, I never got time to do the work. Oh, we never have time to do work. It's like, uh, what about right now? You have a work day. What about all this time you have right now to work on your assignment when I, the substitute, am here? Hmm, yeah, don't come, don't go crying to your teacher saying like, I never had time to get it done. Uh, yeah, that's because you were on your phone. I think sadly that really points more towards just the issue of phone addiction, the poor habits of the students, lack of self-discipline, and lax parenting more than anything, right? The students who succeed in school have self-discipline, and they're smart and self-directed enough to put away their phones, to buckle down, to get to work. You know, that's the long and the short of it, right? It's not rocket surgery or anything. You put your phone away, you focus, and you do your work, right? That's how you succeed. And school is easy, right? Everything is laid out for you. You just follow those steps, one, two, three, you know, and do the assignment, check off the boxes, make sure you have all the components in the assignment, you know, is it, did you, you, did you spell check it? Is it grammar checked? You know, did you put in the assignment what the instructor, the teacher wanted, you know? And yeah, that's all it takes to succeed, right? And if the students do have questions, then they're usually articulate enough and smart enough to ask for guidance. Those are the students who succeed. Now, I've mentioned before that the educational theorist uh, Pablo Freire, who is also the author of The Education of the Oppressed, it's a famous like a book on pedagogy, he has said that all education is inherently political in nature. That is to say that every country, every community will teach its people what it feels is important for them to know. Now, whether or not you agree with Freire's ideas on critical pedagogy is for another time, but you got to admit that he does have a point. Now, since curriculums heavily differ from country to country, from state to state, from county to county, from district to district, and even school to school, right, it stands that what political rhetoric about race or gender or so on and whatnot that's affecting one area may not necessarily affect another area or even be ubiquitous, right? Maybe it's only affecting that school or that district or something. Now, moving on, as for being a tour guide on a submarine, some other things I were thinking about is that, you know, the only work that I bring home with me from that job are questions that I have about the submarine itself. And I don't mind that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's fun doing the research about the naval history and technology of that submarine. And two, the new information actually I feel allows me to become better at my job because it provides me with more material, more personal learning that I can integrate into my own tours if needed. And three, uh, if I do have a question that I can ask my coworkers of, then I can usually get a straight and intelligent answer from the people I work, work with without having to deal with continuous BS. Another thing is I don't really have to get caught up in arguments with people who say like, you know, oh, well, actually, blah, 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 you know, because those types of people, I've had like a couple of them on my tours, you know, are like, oh, well, actually, you know, it's not like that, you know, because my general way of dealing with those types of people is just keep the tour going, right? I'm not going to stop and get into a silly nitpicky argument about history or whatever with you just for the sake of you, you know, stoking your ego or whatever. I mean, the truth is that most of the people who take the tours on the submarine are completely blown away by the complexity of the vessel. Like they've never seen the inside of a submarine, or if they have, they probably have not seen the interior of a Cold War era submarine. So like they walk aboard, they're like, oh my God, this is crazy. I don't even know what this does, you know, because, you know, not everyone is a submariner. So it's just, it's totally foreign environment to them as much as it is for me. But the difference is that I work on work in this submarine. So I'm used to seeing it by now. 
Now, those people who do try and sharpshoot me are pretty rare. I don't even bother, like I say, getting into an argument or debate or even a conversation with them because at the end of the day, I have to give the tour to the rest of the group, you know? So if someone starts nitpicking every little detail, then honestly speaking, I usually don't even take the time to acknowledge them. Like, I've gotten my whole spiel down to the point where I'm almost continuously talking for the entire tour, which is usually about 45 to 50 minutes long. And I know exactly what I'm going to say and even where I'm going to take breaths in between sentences, right? I've got my spiel down. So anyone who really tries to pipe up and say like, oh, well, well actually, it's not like that. You know, see that submarine? And it's like, I usually just keep talking over them. You know, it's like, great, whatever, right? You know, I'm going to continue on with my tour, so shut your face, right? <laughs> now, I mentioned in the last Random Musings that there are reasons for us tour guides for cutting the tour short. And this basically amounts to me cutting parts out of my speech or skipping some areas entirely if I feel that the situation warrants it. Now, speaking of which, the shortest tours I've actually given thus far were like 25 minutes long. So for example, one time I had a tour of a whopping one person and all this guy wanted to do was just see the inside of the submarine. And I quickly caught on that he just didn't care about my, my whole spiel, right? So I'm just like, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to just take you from room to room. You can look around and ask any questions you like. And so my tour basically went like, you know, okay, this is the ward room. Do you have any questions? Nope. Okay, let's move on. You're going to follow me forward here. All right, this is the control room of the submarine, you know? Any questions? All right, this is the torpedo room. Any questions? And so on and so forth. Like, like, don't get me wrong. Like, this guy was a nice guy. He was not rude or disrespectful or anything. But, like, he just wanted to see the inside of the submarine. And he paid for a ticket. And so I'm like, all right, well, give you what you want. You know, you don't care what I say? Fine. Here's the inside of the submarine. This is this. This is that room. This is the other room. And so on. Any questions? <laughs> yeah. So that was the quickest tour I ever gave. It might have been, even been shorter than 25 minutes. And I honestly, I just, I saved a lot of breath and a lot of energy doing it. <laughs> but I think the most common reason for shortening the tour, at least in my experience thus far, is because there's little kids on the tour, usually like three to five-year-olds. And for that reason, kids that young, we just feel they cannot be safe. And more likely, by the time we're like two-thirds or three-fourths of the way through the tour, their attention span has run out. I have had another, like, 25-minute tour for that particular reason. Like, I just felt like, you know, these kids weren't... Th their attention span had run out. So I'm like, okay, well, that's the tour. You know, thank you for coming. All right, here's the exit. Goodbye. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day and so on. So, yeah, because the kids were totally disengaged and all that. Now, apart from those reasons, if someone is being actually like really disruptive or flat out unsafe, then as a tour guide, I do have the authority to kick someone off the tour. Now, it does happen with other tour guides. I have not yet done it myself. Usually people are kind of smart enough to uh, elect to leave the tour early. You know, they're like, oh, I, I can't be here. Can, I, can you show me the exit? I'm like, yeah, sure. It's right there. Go up those stairs and you're out of the submarine, you know. But um. Yeah, I mean, if someone is actually being disruptive, you know, and uh, I will ask you to leave, right? And if you refuse to leave, then I'm going to call security and they will make you leave. And I was thinking about this kind of this level of authority, so to speak. And what's nice is that this is a genuine consequence that I can implement. In other words, if I kick someone off my tour, then flat out, they are off my tour for good and they're not coming back. Ah, oh, that is so nice in a way, you know, it's like, hey, you paid for it, you know, but you're not following the rules, you're not behaving, you're being disruptive or dangerous, get out. Now, let, let's do some compare and contrast here. So let's say I'm teaching, right? I'm a teacher in a classroom, much like my experience was at teaching middle school. And let's say that I have a disruptive student that I want removed from my classroom, Generally, you don't just send the student down to the office. You know, you call the office and they'll send someone down to collect that student and take them. You know, because if you tell your student, like, get out of the class, you need to go down to the office, you know, go see the, you know, go talk to the principal or whatever, you know, whatever. No, you're not going to send, not, not in this day and age, you're going to, you're not going to send a student by themselves down to the office because that's just a, a free pass for them to just 
wander the halls, you know, they're probably just going to go to the bathrooms in the bathroom, waste time on their phones, you know, so it's of no consequence. It's, it's a get out of jail free card for them. They don't want to be there. If you want a student removed, you know, you call the office and say like, hey, I need a student removed from my class, yada, yada, yada. Okay, thank you. And they'll send someone down to collect that student and make sure they actually go to the office, you know. Now, when I was teaching middle school and I had a student removed from my class, really what that meant was that they would be back in my classroom in like 15 or 20 minutes, probably with a granola bar in hand. Yeah. Now, basically, all that happened is that they, you know, went down to the office, they talked to an administrator, maybe the dean of students, the vice principal or a counselor or something, they had a little chat with them, and they quote unquote promised to be a better student. And then they were then given a granola bar and sent back to class, all within like 15 or 20 minutes. And that's the newest, latest and greatest educational practice we have these days. We call it restorative justice. And which is, you know, clearly going to revolutionize student behavior and create wonderful human beings. Except that's not what restorative justice is. Now, allow me to quote from the all-knowing and 100% accurate Wikipedia. Quote, Restorative justice is an approach to justice that aims to repair the harm done to victims. In doing so, practitioners work to ensure that offenders take responsibility for their actions, to understand the harm they have caused, to give them an opportunity to redeem themselves, and to discourage them from causing further harm. For victims, the goal is to give them an active role in the process and to reduce feelings of anxiety and powerlessness. End quote. Yeah, you see that whole process that restorative justice is and the situation that I just described with students getting a granola bar? Yeah, it's a bit one-sided there. Now, on paper, restorative justice sounds great if this were an ideal world that we lived in. But that's the problem. We don't live in an ideal world. There have been a number of actual criticisms of restorative justice from scholars and people who are far smarter than I am, but from my personal perspective as an educator, here are my criticisms of restorative justice. For one thing, it's something that requires schools and staff to play the long game, like the really long game, and this is not always doable in an educational setting. And to be honest, sometimes you just need immediate consequences for certain infractions, right? Students especially teenagers, in general, are not very good at thinking long-term. They only really respond to what's immediate, you know, that instant gratification kind of thing. And especially when it comes to, like, tweens and young teenagers, right? 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds, right? They don't think long-term. <laughs> they just don't, you know? And if we're playing the long game at school, then... Furthermore, that requires a lot of frequent and regular follow-up to ensure that the lesson sticks and that someone is holding the student accountable. And that doesn't always happen at school, you know, because there does need to be a someone, quote-unquote, holding the student accountable, right? Who's following up with the student? And often, like, again, the student needs to build a relationship with this person or have a relationship with this person who's going to hold them accountable. You can't just pass that uh, accountability holder role off to someone, you know, different every time, you know, because the student doesn't care, you know. Oh, now I'm going to see Bob, you know, or I'm, now I'm going to see the vice principal. Now I'm going to see Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, and they're going to hold me accountable. It's like, yeah, it's like, uh, well, if the student has no good relationship with one or the other or so on, then it, what actually is there to hold them accountable, Right. How am I to know what the student has done in the last week or month or something, you know? And furthermore, like, there's just not a budget for enough support staff to be that quote-unquote someone to hold the student accountable. Everyone's already overworked, so nobody really wants to take on that extra duty of being that person, you know? It's like, I got a hundred other things I need to do today, and now I need to sit down for 20 minutes and have a little chat with the student to quote-unquote hold them accountable, right? So it's, it's like this huge caseload, right? And you jump from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. So, I mean, ideally, you know, we'd have like, you know, enough support staff to really narrow this down to them having a real small load of students that they need to hold accountable for these types of things, right? If we're going to play this long game of restorative justice. And thirdly, the whole process 
of restorative justice seems to operate off this notion that the perpetrator and the victim, both of them, are willing to forgive and reconcile, at least to some degree, right? Have a conversation with each other, or whatever you want to call it. But here's the thing. That doesn't really work if one or both parties don't have compassion or sympathy or empathy for others. I mean, have you seen some of the little punks running around middle school or high schools lately? You'd swear these people are flat-out sociopaths, right? They don't give a damn about anyone or anything but themselves and their phones. So if the perpetrator is not willing to acknowledge the harm they've done, or they don't care enough to change, or the victim really holds a grudge and is not willing to accept any reconciliation, maybe the victim just wants to feel incessantly victimized. And yes, let me put it this way. There are people out there who always want to play the victim, you know, because it's convenient for them, right? And they use that as a manipulative tool to use against others in order to get what they want, you know? It's because of this, you know, oh, I'm always the victim. You know, how come you always take his side? You know, it's like, yeah. Then the whole concept of that restorative justice breaks down, right? You know, you got the perpetrators like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know what you're doing. It wasn't me. No, he deserved it. No, he started it. You know, so, yeah. You get what I'm saying? Like, it it only works if both sides, the perpetrator and the victim, are willing to, to take responsibility for what they did and to understand that they need to meet together to reconcile but when we're talking about teenagers like that yeah fat chance Uh anyway on that lovely tangent let's get back to the submarine (laughs) so another nice thing that being about being a tour guide on the submarine is that we're all doing the same thing with a clear objective simply put we're hired because we're going to give interpretive tours as museum educators we all have the same topic or set of topics to discuss and there's no real ambiguity or confusion about why we are there and what we're doing. That's kind of another of my major issues with the field of education is that everyone has their own interests, their budgetary issues, and so on and so forth. Hence why many things in education are not guaranteed. Now in light of that, OMSI, the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, as an organization does have some degree of those problems, right? Every bureaucracy does, right? That being said, it is fairly small and it's not quite as politically charged as, say, a school or a school district. Additionally, the submarine itself is actually separated from the rest of OMSI, both physically and somewhat culturally as well. As in, like, you know, people who work on the submarine at OMSI were a part of OMSI, but were, of course, our own department within the, within the uh, bureaucracy of the museum. Furthermore, we're our own community. And so you need to actually walk outside the building to get down to the submarine, which is on the river. So we're not only physically separated, but we're also culturally separated as well. And in many ways, we actually prefer it that way. So we don't get involved in the usual office politics. Like, hey, we like being on the submarine because we're, you know, in our own little world, so to speak. Now, furthermore, the submarine is a permanent year-round exhibit at the museum, so it's fairly secure. We don't have to worry too much about whether or not the submarine exhibit will be in vogue, quote-unquote, a year or two down the road, right? It's pretty secure, and we're not in danger of going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, we're not as susceptible to the winds of change, you know, the, the politics, you know, the, of the broader world and so, that, so on and whatnot. Another thing is that I do kind of find myself actually missing being on the submarine when I'm substitute teaching during the weekdays. Like, I just don't find being in a classroom quite as interesting as being on a submarine. Now, as I mentioned previously, since the uh, submarine tours are heavily direct instruction based, that is basically, you know, I get in front of a group of people who are taking the tour and I lecture them for 45 minutes. I'm in control of the tour and I'm in control of the content of that tour. So it's nice that, you know, not only is it an interesting environment to work in, but I have positive control over what's going on much more than I feel being in a classroom with like 30 or 40 students or whatever, you know, because the tours themselves on the submarine are limited to 14 people. So that sense of control over both the environment and the tour group and the content of the tour I find is really, really nice. So I'm going to kind of end off this post with talking about some 
some weird or really strange tours that I've given on the submarine thus far, you know. One time, this guy comes onto the boat while I've, after I've just started my tour. This guy starts blabbering on about, hey man, I'm like joining the army and I want to see if like I have what it takes and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, uh, what? He's like, oh uh, yeah, I just joined the army and you know, I, I want to, can I come on, come on the submarine and I want to see if I have what it takes, man. Uh, the blueback is not a recruiting office. This is a former Navy submarine. This is not the army. You got the wrong service, bruh. So anyway, another tour guide uh, helped him out that day, you know, because he was interrupting my tour. So he's like, hey, why don't you come with me? I'll, I'll talk with them. And basically, they showed them off the boat. Yeah, this guy seemed pretty well baked. Like he talked like a pothead. I, I couldn't really smell it on him, but that's this guy was spacey beyond belief. We should have sent this guy into the Space Force or something, you know. <laughs> I kind of doubt, actually, that he was joining the army because I don't even think he'd make it past the recruiter, much less through MEPS. And even then, assuming he somehow was actually joining the army, uh, well, dude, uh, the military isn't too keen on supporting your personal drug habit. In other words, they have a zero-tolerance policy for all illegal substances. Yes, that includes cannabis products. Uh, speaking of marijuana, actually, the other day, there was a very distinct smell of marijuana lingering in the air following another tour, which was not mine, actually. Yeah, these people must have really been partaking in the electric lettuce if the smell of the pot was strong enough to actually overpower the smell of the submarine itself and linger in the air. So, like, I, I wasn't really following the tour, but they were fairly early on in the tour. You know, I was walking down the passageway, and I was like, whoa, man, someone was, uh, someone was pretty baked. Yeah, someone was a, a frequent user, maybe abuser of the stuff. So, yeah, it was lingering, that musky, you know, kind of uh, skunky, burnt, stench you know that is marijuana boy I, I i walked through a cloud of whatever that was yeah this stuff was must have been coming out of these people's pores yeah so i mean people wonder like what the smell is on the submarine itself they they step onto the submarine and they're like what is that smell like well i can tell you that it's mostly diesel fuel cigarette smoke and a bunch of other things like oil and the various tanks and the bilge of the submarine and a mixture of body odor I mean, after 31 years in service, these odors are like molecularly bonded to the interior of the submarines. That's why it kind of has a unique smell to it. But the fact that I can actually smell marijuana after this tour had gone through the area, boy, it must have been really strong. So, yeah, I talked to that tour guide who was leading that tour afterwards. I'm like, man, what kind of people were you having on your tour? <laughs> Hey, dude, was it like totally awesome? And yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that was kind of an interesting experience. I did have another tour where a little girl was uh, pretty disappointed that the submarine didn't move. And apparently she was so disappointed that she wanted to go home at the very end of the tour. You know, she's like, oh, this is so boring. I want to go home. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she must have been like, I don't know, five or six years old. And when people say that, you know, people have come on to tours and like, oh, dude, this is lame. It's like, Bro, your face is lame. You know, it's like, what do you expect? You know, it's more of a history lesson and not an amusement park ride. And that brings me to another thing I've countered. You know, it's just that a handful of people are just who are just bored by guided tours. You know, in fact, like that's another reason actually to cut the tour short. If you literally lost the attention of the people on your tour, then like why bother continuing on? Like I said, our job is to provide interpretive tours, which to some measure is meant to be entertaining. So we're kind of acting like as entertainers more than we are as like historians, right? Seriously, like I, I don't know what some people expect when they say like, oh, this tour is boring. It's like, well, what did you want from the tour? You just sat there, you know, or stood there and you haven't asked any questions. You know, you haven't engaged much with the tour. So why are you here? The only upshot for me is that, hey, you paid for it, you know, or maybe your mommy or daddy paid for it or whoever's bringing you, you know, if you're a young kid, but you know, you paid for the tour. So if you don't like it, that's your problem. Now I do warn visitors on occasion, you know, especially if I see a lot of little kids on the tour, you know, it's like, hey, 
this is a submarine. It's not going anywhere. This is not an amusement park ride. This is not a, an interactive virtual reality video game submarine simulation or whatever. You know, this is a museum ship. It's a 45-minute lecture on submarine history, naval engineering, and the life on a submarine. Interactivity with the submarine itself is actually limited to really only three areas. And the rest is basically you just walking around, following me around, listening to my spiel, and just taking in the atmosphere and the environment of the interior of the submarine. How many people get to say they saw the inside of a torpedo room or the submarine control room or the cruise mess on a submarine or berthing areas or so on? You know, that's not the common everyday experience, you know, so just take that in think like, wow, this is really cool, you know, and if you have questions, ask questions. It's it's not a carnival ride. It's it, This isn't Disneyland, you know, this is a museum. So my suggestion is if you want a tour that's not boring, then ask the tour guide questions. As the wise old Mr. Miyagi said, the answers are only important if you ask the right questions. And that does bring me to my final weird tour, at least for this episode anyway. Now, every so often at OMSI, we'll get what we call, quote unquote, zombie tours. Now, these are tours with people who literally have no questions, like nothing. They don't say anything the entire time. And they basically follow you around on the tour. Supposedly, they're listening to your spiel. They look around and they're silent the whole time. This is the control room, yada, 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 blah, 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 you know, this, that, and the other. It's like, okay, any questions? Okay, well, you're gonna next. You're gonna follow me down to this place, and we're gonna talk about this. <laughs> so that's basically what it likes, what it's like. You know, that those are zombie tours. Now, as I mentioned in my previous random musings episode, I do plan to do these two jobs: substitute teaching and being a tour guide on a submarine for the foreseeable future. Now, hopefully, this will mean that my income will be a bit increased this year and my work a little bit more steady. I have managed to work out a. Uh, decent schedule that I think should keep me fairly busy. But theoretically, there could be weeks where I'm working almost every single day of the week. Now, that's actually not too bad because, like I said, substitute teaching is easy and being on a submarine is actually pretty fun. So even if I do work every single day of the week, well, for one thing, I'm getting paid for every day that I work. And secondly, I'm not dragging my work home with me from either job. And third, one of the jobs I work is really easy and the other job is just really fun. It's a fun environment. I miss the submarine when I'm not on it. All right, well, this episode has gone on for nearly an hour now, so I that's all I have to talk about for a dish time. So I will see everyone later in the next episode. Thank you.